Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And uh, today we have invited a, a frequent and illustrious guest to join us, and that is Jim McGinnis. Uh, Jim is the President and CEO of Crystal Mountain. Uh, it's a four-season resort located uh, right here in our area, just southwest of Traverse City. It's also one of Cherryland's largest members. And Jim is also uh, the chair of the Michigan Utility Consumer Participation Board. So thank you for joining us, Jim. My pleasure, but I might say my wife is actually president. I'm CEO. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we uh, want to give her credit. My yeah. apologies to Chris, yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, again, joined, as always, by uh, my trusty sidekick, who has recently described himself as the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson, Tony <laughs> very, Anderson. Very much so. So uh, we invited Jim to come on today because uh, Crystal's just got some exciting things going on in terms of energy. And so we want to talk a little bit about that and then talk about some of the um, things that you're doing in general at Crystal. So uh, before we get into that, though, how long have you been with Crystal? How long have you and Chris been running Crystal? Uh, we've been there, it'll be 33 years in October. So what, is, what have been the biggest changes you've seen kind of in the, in the industry, the ski industry, the resort industry, and even at Crystal in that time? Well, I think the weather has probably been the biggest change. Uh, when we first came, um, we had seven snow guns and could pump 700 gallons a minute to make snow. And now we have about 140 snow guns, and we can pump 6,000 gallons a minute. So when when did you did you start adding snow guns? Probably, oh, um, it probably took us two or three years to begin that process. Wow. Um, and then when you kind of look in general, kind of across the industry, and, and regardless of region or space, like what do you see really changing in, in the ski industry? Well, I see an awful lot of the industry investing in summer business now. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, I just saw a press release from Vail, and uh, they were in the Wall Street Journal, I think, too, or New York Times, I guess it was, where they're investing more and more in summer activities and events and recognizing that the summers are a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you have an asset-heavy business like well, like the power business mm -hmm. or the resort business, yep. you want to keep those assets working year-round. And so I think resort operators are recognizing that more, even though winter is really the big profit generator. What are they adding to attract people in the summertime? Well, conference centers, golf courses have been added. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been this has been going on for some time. Actually, we've been doing it probably for 20 or 25 years. Um, Mountain coasters, uh, alpine slides, bike, uh, mountain biking, bike parks. That's mm -hmm. been a big thing. So um, Crystal was recently recognized with a, a Golden Eagle Award. Um, these are awards that recognize resorts, programs, and people in the ski industry making significant strides towards sustainability and reducing skiing's carbon footprint. And the uh, award you received is a new award that they they had not had previously, that's the Climate Change Impact Award. Can you talk about kind of what that award meant to you all, but also why you were chosen for it? Well, it's uh, the award meant a lot to us. We've been, as you know, uh, longtime advocates of uh, a clean environment and clean energy. And, and the ski industry, you know, we're in the snow business, and uh, climate change is, is really bad for business. <laughs> and I think most of our industry knows that and are investing in uh, 
other things and, uh, you know, so the summer operations and trying to cut their carbon footprint. And um, so it's, it's really a, a, a national and probably even an international uh, uh, area that people are involved in. So, so it was nice to get that national recognition by, you know, the, our peers. So what specific things have you done at Crystal to reduce your carbon footprint? Well, we've done a lot of things over the years. We've like some things as simple as uh, when you put in snowmaking pipes, put in big ones that have don't require as much horsepower to move the same amount of water. Uh, LED lights. Uh, and back in 2012, we relamped our th- our 33,000 square foot conference facility, and re- we reduced the uh, energy electricity consumption by about 75,000 kilowatt hours a year, which is enough to power a Chevy Volt 200,000 miles a year. So, so LED lighting. Uh, we've put in EV charging stations. Uh, and uh, thankfully, Cherryland is supplying us with 56% zero carbon electricity, and we've tried to put that out to our customers. And so people come here, and they charge their cars with uh, pretty clean electricity. Plus, uh, this year we did a, uh, well, in the last two years, we just built a $12 million building that is heated and cooled using geothermal energy. How many wells, how many pumps did you have to drill for that? Well, it was 24 wells, uh, 460 feet deep, and it represents uh, close to five miles of piping. It cost about an extra, over and above a regular system, which would be a boiler system and a chiller system. It was probably about an extra 200000 a little less than that. What do, you, what do you think your payback is on that $200,000 investment? It's probably about a 10-year payback is what we're thinking, but uh, we kind of have a low discount rate, so we value the future more than some companies. Mm-hmm. And so and, and the thing about the payback period, you know, that's just one financial measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you look at payback period, it only takes into account what happens during the first 10 years or payback time. But the, we envision this helping us for the next 40 or 50 years. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of benefit that's not measured in that payback, simple payback calculation. Right, right. And yep. you, you all were propane dependent, right? You don't have natural gas at Crystal? That's right. We do. Uh, we use about 300,000 gallons of propane a year. And uh, we have our own uh, storage and distribution system. So we're trying to you know, get away from that. And I think this was a good step. And again, we're powering it most with electricity. We have we have uh, 13 heat pumps in the building, and it keeps the building really cool, and it keeps it nice and warm. And again, we're using the 56% zero carbon electricity to to run the heating and cooling system. And that really helps us as a utility, because like you just said, uh, with your ski hill, you, you use a lot of energy in the winter time. Use doing this heat pump. And using more energy in the summertime helps balance our load to crystal as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it helps to improve the load profile. We don't have yeah. the ski business. We don't have a real mm-hmm. desirable load profile. It's low for 11 months of the year, and then all of a sudden it spikes up. Because our snowmaking system is probably over 4,000 horsepower. Yeah, yeah. So it, it peaks up big. pretty good. It's big. So it's, it's a little see. bit of balance. Not, not, <laughs> not, total, <a> lot. <laughs> not total balance, but a little bit. We'll take all we can get. Sure. Meter spin is good. So one of the things I like about 
the, um, what you guys are doing with, with geothermal is it, it hints at a technology that can be really useful to a lot of our members because in the rural areas we serve, a lot of our members are propane dependent. Um, it subjects them to a lot of price fluctuations depending on – they don't have a lot of certainty. Um, it's also clearly um, not as good for the environment as – switching over to electricity because of the fact that we've done so much to clean up our power supply. And we have some really even interesting residential applications where um, our members use, are using their wells to um, install really, really inexpensive geothermal and get themselves off of deliverable fuels and, and on to cleaner and, for them, um, more affordable. Yeah, and we've done that actually for years. We, in all our cooling systems, we don't have any cooling towers. So what, we've cooled our chillers in the conventional systems with a once through uh, from from our water system or from a, a well. And so we've, we've done that too. You know, it, it it's really interesting about the propane because, um, you know, more and more gas is being sold internationally. You know, we're mm -hmm. exporting more and more gas. Yeah. And so uh, I was just looking at a, a curve today from the uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration showing that the amount of uh, natural gas in storage is um, quite low this, this year right now as compared to previous years. So as we export more and more natural gas, I think the price is going to go up, and, of course, that affects the price of propane. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to the extent that you can reduce your dependence on on propane it's uh, plus propane has some other issues it's not the cleanest of, of fuels and, you know do you think we should be exporting our natural gas and our propane overseas <laughs> that's a good i mean we, we spent decades trying to be energy independent and as soon as we get there we start shipping it across the water and yeah well it i think it's counterproductive to me i understand and don't don't necessarily disagree with that but but you, you know if you talk to the gas gas producers they want to expand their market and uh, but i think we're going to see it, it is volatile i can remember like right now i'm buying winter propane for about a uh, dollar 5 uh, a gallon pre-buy and i can remember a few years back taking some spot loads in the winter at 4 dollars mm -hmm. a gallon which was very painful. Mm -hmm. So you do get a lot of variation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things I really um, like about the way you've approached this at Crystal, and and it's why I would have also given you the Climate Impact Award, is I think you guys really just have this really holistic look at what your, what your energy impact is. So it's not just heating, it's not just cooling, you're thinking about um, transportation, vehicles, and also the simpler things like lighting and, you know, just building more efficient buildings. So I, I, that's something I've always liked about how your approach is, is it's very all of the above. Yeah, I think it's really three major areas. You have the power generation side. And as, as we, you know, I'm a power engineer by training. I started studying that 40 years ago. So uh, I look at trying to generate, you know, encourage utilities to generate clean, clean electricity. And then you've got the building side where the geothermal and the lighting and all that comes in. Then you've got the vehicle electric, electrification transportation side where you try to use uh, electric vehicles and, um, you know, power them with clean, clean energy. And between those three segments, that represents something like 75% of the carbon emissions. So, so speaking of electric vehicles, you have a Tesla. Yes. Correct. And, and you used to have a – is this your second Tesla? It's my second one. Mm -hmm. And you had a Volt. 
We still have the Volt. It's our security vehicle. Okay. So um, I want to hear your opinion. Uh, th- th- there's been a l- Tesla's been in the news a lot lately with their um, some production issues with getting the Model 3 out, and then obviously the tax credit for te- Tesla is potentially going away at the end of the year. W- are, what is your outlook for Tesla? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's risky. I mean, it's a risky business. Elon Musk is, I mean... One of the things I really like about Elon, he is a true entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're an entrepreneur and you're passionate about your subject, you don't give up. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, being an entrepreneur, that's what it, being an entrepreneur is about, is about finding a way, figuring out a way to get around the roadblocks and make it happen. And that's what our country's about. Yeah, and I think he's sleeping in the factory now or so the story goes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, I, that's my general feeling uh, about him. Um, I have an awful lot of reasons. He's very, he really knows his, his science. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he was trained as an electrical engineer. A lot of the stuff he talks about, you know, we talked about it in engineering school, and I, I see it when I talk with scientists. So I think he's dealing with some real good scientific facts. Um, I think that um, the Model 3 is uh, from, I, I, I've been in one, I've sat in one. We had, uh, you know, we have an EV show at our Beer and Brat Festival each year and uh, a fellow brought a Model 3. I've heard some really good reports about the Model 3. I have a Model S100D, and it's just a fabulous car. So the technology definitely works. I can go... In my car, I can go 335 miles on a charge. Wow. It's amazing. That's, that's pretty and awesome. Our, our Bolt is about two, 230. Yeah. Well, you have a Bolt now. We, we do. do. Oh, congratulations. We, we, we leased a Volt, right. and that lease was up, and so we went to the next generation. And the Bolt has been an excellent car. I have I have driven a Bolt, and it, it is. It's very the very well appointed and mm-hmm. it's, you know sporty, and I mean it's very yeah, good. Yeah, we fun. like it. We like it quite enough a bit. room on the inside for bigger people to sit, front right. and back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't usually have that problem, but well. <laughs> I, I do appreciate the comfort of my passengers. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, no, we we really really like like the Bolt quite a bit. And I, one of the things I think, independent of what happens with Tesla, I think it will always be true that they have been a part of this market transformation and really driven this market transformation that we're now starting to see with GM and other 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 um, kind of car industry uh, companies coming in with some less expensive market-ready um, electric vehicles. I think they really, you know, I, I once heard the chairman, uh, the former chairman of LG Chem uh, make a comment that basically Tesla kind of kicked everybody and got them going. Mm-hmm. You know, that's Absolutely. what started it off. Yeah, now we're on the brink of a bunch of electric car options. Well, it was funny. I was parking the other day in one of our chargers, and this really beautiful Porsche pulls up and backed in right next to me, and I thought, well, what's he What's he doing backing up to a charger? And he got out, and he opened his charging port and plugged, his, really? plugged in. Yeah, he had a 14-kilowatt-hour battery. But, uh, yeah, he said that, and he worked for Porsche, actually. And it was beautiful. It was a really a beautiful car. And he said, boy, you know, they're going with 800-volt charging that's mm-hmm. going to be able to charge twice as fast as a Tesla. And I mean, I think it's great. The more, the merrier, yeah. you know. Yeah. I was just reading, and I'm not going to remember if it was Mercedes or BMW. It was one or the other. As um, thinks that they could have, a, in a, within a year, market-ready wireless um, charging 
vehicles. Well, that's already happening. That's I have a friend who's on the board of a wireless charging company, and they're they already have uh, wireless charging of up to 200 kilowatts. That's cool. Uh, so for, they're driving on they're driving on a mat then, or what? yeah, you go on onto a mat basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thought process here would be that you could potentially build charging infrastructure into your major roadways and be charging. That this was this was in this article. The speculation mm-hmm. is that you could create the ability to charge as you drive. I don't know that that's the most efficient way to do it, but I, 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 I thought it was intriguing. It's, it's cool to think about how, how things could change. Give them another reason to tear up the road between here and Grand Rapids, which <laughs> they've been doing for the last 10 yeah, years. Yeah, it's expensive too. But I'll tell you where it's really nice is if you have a bus route. Mm. So each of your bus stops, you could have a charger, and you know people mm-hmm. stop there, and then you yeah. can charge. And what that allows you to do is have a smaller battery in your bus, which means you can go. It doesn't take as much energy mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to that's power a, the bus. That's a really but, cool idea. But you could put those mats at every rest stop across the country because that network's already there. You could, yeah. And, but and there's a lot, be, lot to it behind besides yeah. the mat, yeah. <laughs> as you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of charging. Um, it seems like, like you know, the car companies, they're there. They're ready to start producing lots of different versions of electric vehicles to meet different needs at price points most um, people will be able to afford. Charging infrastructure still seems to be the, one of the things that we need to accelerate in order to really see wide-scale deployment of electric vehicles. What, what do you think needs to happen in Michigan for that to get done? Well, what I think needs to happen is the car companies need to work together. They need to cooperate, and they need to take the lead on charging, you know, and come up with a common infrastructure. And I know, I know that Tesla is willing to be a part of that, but obviously they would have to pay into what's already deployed by Tesla. But when I, you know, I go to these public service commission hearings and I listen to some of the uh, Michigan auto companies, and they basically say, well, you know, we don't do charging. We just built the car, and you know we've done we've done our part with charging, and that's up to somebody else. And oh, by the way, consumers energy that's in your wheelhouse. But you know who pays for that? Ratepayers. Yeah, I think the the consumer is going to have to push the charging infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think the consumers are going to have to prove that they will buy the car. So it's going to be the daily driver, the commuter to work and back who doesn't need a charging network. We're going to need to sell a bunch of cars to those people and then it'll move out from there. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of space to expand the market with two vehicle families, right? Mm-hmm. You, that, that's where it you needs could, to you start. You could get a, a lot of saturation with that before, you know, necessarily needing it. Well, it's funny, you know, I, I, I don't use superchargers that much. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I try to avoid them because yeah. even though it's, I can put on 200 miles in less than a half an hour, I still, you know, I charge at work, I charge at home, and if you've got enough range, and I think the Bolt goes a long way to, and that, to that. That's where I'm coming from. If I had a Bolt at my house, I would never need a charging infrastructure because we have the gas car for going on the long trips, and yeah. the Bolt would get me wherever I, I go throughout the day, every day. And, and then I, home. And then I charge it at home at night. Mm-hmm. And, right, or at work. Yeah. Either way, you'd be charging on co-op power. Either way. That's right. <laughs> Which is 56% carbon-free. Um, so it's an election. Uh, are we good with EVs? I want to talk about politics. Sure. Okay. So uh, given the fact that it's an election year, seems like it would be fun to talk a little politics with you. You you have been very, very involved in the political scene. You've worked with a lot of different politicians, governors, et cetera, et cetera. Who historically stands out to you 
as exemplary, the kind of political leadership that you think that that really is, you know, an example we should look to? I think Governor Milliken. He would be my number one choice. Why is that? Well, he's he works with all all kinds of people, and uh, I mean he works with both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Uh, I know his former environmental advisor. Uh, his wife was very active. He was concerned about the environment. And not only was he good in you know, bipartisan discussions, getting things done. Of course, it was a different climate back then. But he and his wife were very keen on, on the environment and protecting the environment. And I think we need more attention to that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess he would, be, he would be my number one pick. Tony, do you have a do you have one? I'm going to go with Governor Snyder right now, just off the top of my head, because you didn't hand me that sheet ahead of time. But I just like the fact that he's got the budget done ahead of time, eight years in a row. And I think he and has shown he, also a willingness to work across the aisle. Mm-hmm. He also yes. he's, he's been very yes. attentive to environmental mm-hmm. issues. Um, and in my time in Michigan, it was Granholm, and then it was. Snyder, so I don't have a lot of Michigan experience to go go from. Yeah. So we both have, we have favorite governors. Um, when we look down at like the legislative level, is there anyone that you've worked with who really has 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 stuck out to you? They're all crap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, in, in Wyoming, in my early days as managing electric co-ops, it was Craig Thomas. He was a former. Um, cooperative statewide manager who went on into the House and then later the Senate. And he always had the co-op's best interest at heart, so I'm partial to that. We do love people who take care of co-ops. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, and Tony, you were the one who pitched this question, so you can't say it's going to catch you off guard. But one of the things we have in Michigan is term limits. So right now in this election, we're going to turn over uh, the majority of our, ho- our House seats, or, or Senate seats, and then we have a lot of people up in the House. Um, what are term limits, are they working? What do you think? What are the pros and cons? Were you a part of the kind of initial push for term limits, Jim? Uh, yes, but I think they ended up being too short. Hmm. And, and I, I think I, a lot I, of people uh, felt that. I, w- I would agree with that. Uh, having 15 years of experience in Michigan, they are too short. So they the, need They need to be longer. I think... I would like to see term limits gone. I don't believe in term limits at all because it takes away my right as a voter to elect whoever I want. But we have them, and I believe we're always going to have them. So I, I think we need to the compromises to make them longer. Right, and you know it's interesting when you look at boards, boards of directors too, and mm-hmm. like we have a term limit on our board of directors. Some some boards don't, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I've spent a lot of time talking to board members and trying to, trying to recruit board members and what have you. And it's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. But I do think there are some benefits to uh, term limits. And if, if you have a board member, if you have somebody that you really want back, you know, you can get them back in another year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing I've seen as a potential tweak to the current system in Michigan that, I, that makes sense to me would be to not tie the limits to one particular, like, House or Senate. Instead to say you can serve up to whatever the right amount of time is, 15 years, 20 years, in either mm-hmm. in either side. And then you don't get this kind of like funnel effect where it's like, let me limit out my, limit myself out in the House and then move into the Senate and limit myself out in the Senate. Instead, it just kind of people can get somewhere and stay long enough to, to be very good at it. 
Yeah, the learning curve is steep, and that's what we lose with term limits. Is right. if you've only got six years in the house, you're getting it figured out after three and four years, and then you're gone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Are there any um, kind of legislative, big legislative successes you'd point to that you've seen in the last? We'll just go with 10, 10 to twenty years. Yes, um, actually, I'm I'm pretty pleased with a lot of the things that Governor Snyder has done. I think one. Uh, Working on the Detroit bankruptcy, that was a, a huge lift. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, obviously it was a team sport, team effort, but he, he really led the charge on that. And that, I mean, that was just a major thing mm-hmm. that we needed to take care of in Michigan. I think also the new Gordie Howe Bridge, and mm-hmm. he championed that, and that took an awful lot of effort and I think uh, help, will help to expand trade between Canada and, the, and uh, Michigan. I think uh, the Medicaid expansion, he worked very hard on that, and that, that helps to provide uh, something like 650,000 Michiganders with health care, which I think is, is really important. And then also uh, the new energy legislation that came out at the end of 2016, uh, while it wasn't uh, you know, perfect for, for everybody, I think there were a lot of really good provisions in there that are encouraging utilities to look at other options besides building new power plants, such as demand response, such as uh, importing power using transmission, energy efficiency, which I know Tony and you and, and Cherryland have championed for mm-hmm. for many years. Now, there's another side to that too. I think uh, there have been some issues uh, in the last few years. The Flint water crisis. I think, uh, un- unfortunately, Governor Snyder had the watch. Uh, when that happened, but you know that's been going on probably for several decades, so mm-hmm. it's not a, a new problem. I think also this line five issue, and uh, I have a friend who is a deep deep water oil and gas diver, and he he goes all over. The, he's from uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, and he goes all over the world uh, repairing oil and gas pipelines, and he was very aware of this issue. He lives in British Columbia. He was very aware of this issue, and he said, you know, one of the things no one's talked about is what they call the 6 o'clock issue. So you take a pipe, and at 6 o'clock on the bottom of the pipe, you have these, you know, this little scouring of the bottom of the pipe, which weakens the pipe. Hmm. And he says he sees this. I mean, he he dives down as deep as 600 feet, and uh, he sees when he repairs these pipelines, he sees that the bottom of the pipe is scoured and has to be, the pipe needs to be replaced, particularly with an old pipe like the 65-year-old Line 5. Mm-hmm. You run that liquid through there for 65 years and, you know, it adds up. And it's hard for, they have what's called a smart pig that they run through mm-hmm. there to try and, you know, take a look at it. But those are not uh, as reliable as, as one would like. So that's an issue that I think is outstanding right now that we need to you know, take a hard look at. What do you think about the tunnel option? Um, I think that... You're uh, you're 100 feet below the lake bed, so there's no chance to get at the water. That would probably solve that 6 o'clock issue, but I think the pipe would need to be replaced. Oh, yeah. If they built the tunnel, the, the, the current pipeline, it just is retired and goes away. But But then the question is, who's going to pay for it? Enbridge would pay for the tunnel. Yeah, and how much would that be? Half $140 million is the number I saw okay. recently. Okay. Well, that would that would deal with this uh, 6 o'clock issue. But I think mm-hmm. there's, you know, concern about 
running all that under the yeah. Great Lakes. And it, 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 at a minimum, it seems like there is momentum and the political will to say the current situation is not tenable, right? Like, right. we need a different solution. Yeah, and we're just hoping yeah, that we don't. Everybody's in, in, in agreement with that. We're hoping we don't have a, you know, a, what I call a fat tail risk, which is a low probability but high impact, mm -hmm. because that could contaminate something like 400 miles of beaches. I mean, it would be a disaster mm -hmm. for the state, and, and uh, gee, I'd hate to see that happen. So yeah. We don't have much time left, and I want to make sure we save time for fun facts, but, but since we've talked so much about Governor Snyder, and it is this year we will be electing a new governor. I would like to hear your predictions and or endorsements. Uh, coming up on the primary here soon, we've got contested primaries on both sides. Who, 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 do you, who do you see coming out as the Republican and Democratic candidates out of the primary? Well, Gretchen Whitmer is going to come out on the Democratic side, and it's going to be a fight between Brian Kelly and Bill Schuette. Bill Schuette's uh, leading the polls, the, the last I was told. I'm voting for Brian Kelly myself. Uh, I like his relationship with Governor Snyder, and I like the fact he's ran seven marathons. So <laughs> that's right; he's a fellow marathoner. There you go. How about you, Jim? Well, I think I think I agree with your assessment. Do you like Kelly as well? I do like Kelly. Uh, we met with him at, at Crystal Mountain, mm -hmm. and uh, I like him. Uh, you know, we've talked to Gretchen Whitmer too, and I guess we just want to see how it all yeah. plays out and hear a little bit more about it. Uh, so. It's kind of my, the jury's out with us as far as which direction we'll go. Well, and, and and Gretchen does kind of have a little bit of last minute competition with Sri Thanadar. Like if you look at yeah. some of the some of the polls, he's he's overtaking her with this, you know, clearly well financed. Yeah, he's got some money of, to spend and uh -huh. intelligent guy for sure. Yeah, I don't know that it'll work out for him, but it, she's got someone nipping at her heels at the last minute. Mm -hmm. So hmm, it'll be interesting. Well, next yeah. next time we all see each other, we will know at least the answer to half this question. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. Fun day in August. There you go. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to get out and vote in the primaries. They matter, too. Um, so uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up, but we do have time for everyone to share a fun fact. Tony, do you want to go first? Sure. In, in our business, there, there's two things you can count on. Your, a utility will never peak on a Sunday and never peak on a holiday. Well, this month, July 2018, Wolverine Power Supply Cooperative, our power supplier, broke both of these norms. On Sunday, July 1st, they set an all-time peak. And then just three days later on the holiday, July 4th, they broke that peak once again. So never say never. Never say never. Wow. That's yeah, it impressive. Was, it was hot and people were at home. It was hot. I remember mm -hmm. that. How about you, Jim? Well, my fun fact is Warren Buffett's uh, utility company called Mid-America Energy will be the first investor-owned electric utility in the country to generate renewable energy equal to 100% of its customers' usage on an annual basis without the need to ask for an increase in customer rates. Mm -hmm. And they expect to achieve this by 2020. That's awesome. Wow. Wow. That's really impressive. He just came out with a one gigawatt solar project for less than three cents. Right. So he's, yeah, he's well on his way there. He, he's pretty careful with his money, too. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good one. 
So uh, when we were sitting down in here before we started the podcast, I said to Tony, oh, I hope I don't bring the same fun fact as you did. And he said, there's no way that could happen. <laughs> but our fun facts are ac- actually surprisingly similar. But I'm going to give credit for mine to Frank Sipker because he was the one who, who gave it to me. During the most recent heat wave, we at just Cherryland hit an all-time system peak of 96 megawatts. And if you take into account the uh, distributed solar on our system, that's probably closer to about 98 and a half megawatts. Uh, our peak last year was 78 megawatts, and our last high peak during a heat wave was in 2012, and that was 88 megawatts. Wow. So this was a significant peak for us. We have added new load and new meters since 2012. We've had about 4% growth since then, but even still with all those numbers, it shows a 5% average growth in electric usage amongst our, our membership. Yeah. An amazing amount of air conditioning mm-hmm. that we didn't, did not used to have yep. 10 and 15 years ago. Yep. So there you go. The, the air the air conditioning load is, is, is driving higher and higher peaks, and the heat is driving higher and higher air conditioning load. Right. Well, Not surprising. Not surprising. Nope. Well, Jim, congratulations again on the award Crystal for Crystal. Certainly very deserving. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come talk to us about energy. My pleasure, as always. Thank you very much. Thank you.